Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is supported by our friends at Bank Australia. If you didn't know, Bank Australia is a 100% customer-owned responsible bank. Its purpose is to create mutual prosperity for its customers, the communities they live in and the planet we all live on. Hi, I'm Barry Lieberman, editor and publisher of Dumbo Feather, and you're listening to our conversation series podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking to Dr. Anna Rubenstein, a remarkable man who has been teaching leadership skills through his Rites of Passage workshops for the last 25 years. Through this work, Dr. Anna highlights the significance of transition periods for all of us. By honouring the transition periods in our children's lives, we help them become healthy, adjusted adults. The Rites of Passage workshops bring a sacredness back to times of transition and a holding space for community to honour and love our young people as they become the leaders of tomorrow. Anna is a bit of a legend in these parts and once again we had a sold out event, standing room only, as people leaned in hard to listen to this man's wisdom. Hi. G'day. <laughs> I'm a bit nervous, there's a lot of people. It's like full. Yeah. Um, I think the f- I have a thousand questions as always and... Um, just as a, to, to say that we did the interview, we printed it in the magazine, it went out in the world, and Dan and I, one of our first things we wanted to do was actually go and visit Dr. Anna with our kids to his incredible place in Mullumbimby, and we did that not long ago, which was an extraordinary experience. So I've been lucky on many counts, and we might backtrack tonight and fill in some um, space. Maybe you could... Tell everyone what is a rite of passage to you. And yeah, great. Well, even before that, I just want to say welcome and thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Uh, you know, I feel very honoured that we, we put on a talk and, and it's full. So I, I really appreciate that. And, and I hope, you know, from tonight that everybody goes away with one thing at a minimum that, you know, we can all actually do in our families. So... That's, that's what I, I hope happens. And yeah, my passion is rites of passage. And um, the expression rites of passage was first coined by a Belgian anthropologist called Arnold van Gennep in 1908. And he went around to a whole heap of indigenous tribes all around the world. Um, and what he found was that they all created these ceremonies to celebrate and acknowledge the different stages of life. So they felt that you didn't just move from being 
you know, a boy to a young man or a girl to a woman and you didn't just become an elder and, and all these different things that the, the community actually had to, to acknowledge and celebrate it so that both the individual knew and also the community knew. And what he found was that all these different tribes around the world, they, they'd never come together and had a conference and said, this is what we do. But from watching thousands of generations, they'd all worked out similar things. They'd all worked out that there are different stages in life and that fundamental to a person's development is that we move through those stages from being born to dying and that these stages need to be marked and they need to be formally marked. And, and he also saw that in all of these different communities that the way they ran their rites of passage was always the same, that it always had the same elements. And, you know, we have rites of passage in our community. So, you know, a birthday party is a rite of passage for a young child. It's different being a three-year-old to being a two-year-old. It's different being a 10-year-old to being a nine-year-old. And a wedding is a beautiful example of a rite of passage. But so is a graduation, a modern rite of passage now might be a divorce. Um, the, the, you know, but the one that I'm really interested in and the one that they put an enormous amount of energy into is the rite of passage that acknowledges a boy becoming a young man or a girl becoming a young woman. And, and every community everywhere around the world recognised we need to do something. And starting off my professional career as a doctor, what I saw was tremendously happy young children and way too many teenagers struggling, angry, lost, you know, just not in a good place, looking for trouble. And the, the, the thing that I believe is really missing is a healthy, appropriate rite of passage to acknowledge that transition and, and actually to create certain things that, you know, I hope, well, we, we need to talk about tonight. And so, we'll have uh, like 20 questions off that, but... Um, Didn't we say we were going to throw away your notes after the first question? I'm not going to throw away my notes. <laughs> I need my notes. Um, so, I guess one of the things that, of the 20 things, is what were you seeing happened to these kids? Like, what were they stressed about? And what were the unique pressures that they were under when they were coming to you? Yeah, I mean, there's actually some research which came out from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology where they questioned thousands of people between the age of 12 and 70 around their subjective well-being, how they felt about life, how happy they were about the future, what they were doing, their relationship. And what they found was, <coughs> excuse me, that it peaked at 12 years of age and it plummeted mm. down to 16. And then it sort of came up and around about mid-twenties it, it sort of tootled along but never got really up as high as when you were 12 years old until you were about 70. <laughs> so, you know, <clears throat> if you live to 70, you're gonna, the chances are you'll be happy. But <laughs> the real concern is this, this, this it's an it's a absolute drop in the, in the mid-teenage years. And this is also the time when we're seeing the, the mental health issues, the um, depression, the suicide, the disastrous suicide rates we have in Australia, um, the eating disorders, 
um, and, and heaps of other things. And, and also, I mean, in Australian schools today, somewhere between 20 and 45% of teenagers are on medication and or labelled as having a, a, a problem. I mean, that just cannot be right. It cannot be okay. We, I just can't accept that somewhere between a fifth and a half of our kids actually have something wrong with them. I mean, I, I actually believe it's the environment. When, when, when a child, you know, if you, if you look at a five-year-old, if they're not getting what they need, they will act out. And, and it's no different from a teenager. It's actually no different from an adult. And so it's not about saying this kid's got a problem, we're gonna medicate them. It's about going, well, you know, what are they missing out on? What do they need? And on top of that, we now have this tsunami of technology, which we don't actually know how to deal with because it's a first generational problem. And our kids are better at it than we are. So, you know, th there's a huge amount of pressure. And, you know, in a nutshell, I, the, one of the core reasons why every Indigenous community had a rite of passage was because they had a fundamental belief that all of our children are unique. Every single one of them is different. You know, I've met your children. They've all grown up in the same environment and yet they're completely different. They all have their unique personalities, which you can often see from the day they're born. Um, and, and yet, you know, to try and treat them all the same doesn't work. So, so one of the fundamental beliefs of a rite of passage is that every child has unique gifts and talents, genius and spirit. And that it's actually our role as elders to recognise those gifts and talents, that genius and spirit, and to let them know. Because often, you know, the great sportsman thinks they're hopeless, the beautiful girl thinks she's ugly, the clever student thinks they're dumb, or, or whatever. You know, we actually have a role as elders to be supporting our children to find what their, their, their genius is. In fact, the word genius comes from genuine. So when we can help our children be their genuine selves, we bring out their genius. All right, I'm going to go off page. So yeah. my, my question on that is that obviously so many grown-ups haven't been recognised themselves. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How does that play out? So you, well, you know, that must be incredibly confronting or maybe that's one of the reasons why we're kind of in this conundrum that because we've been, there's been this huge gap in secular life and this um, lack of understanding of ourselves even and witnessing of ourselves. Yeah. That Look, um, it, it is true that, I mean, my aim is to bring rites of passage into the mainstream and I find on every level that is a challenge. And one of the reasons it's a challenge amongst many others is that many adults haven't found their own path and their own gifts and talents. And so it's kind of confronting mm. to find that in your child when you know that's somewhere that you haven't been before. Um, but it, you know, I, I, I believe, you know, and I believe we have some major issues in the world and the place to start changing that is with the children and, and, that, and that that's the future. But having said that, there's no reason why we can't actually be creating in a healthy way our own rites of passage. And, um, 
And it, when you look at what were the basic elements in a rite of passage, um, what Arnold van Gennep recognised is that they always shared stories, there was always a challenge, and there was always recognition of the spirit, the gifts and talents of the individual. So, you know, I see more and more programs that are happening for adults around that. Um, so, so that's part of it. And I believe that the more we do it for our children, so when we run our programs, we do father-son and mother-daughter programs. And the, the truth is that the fathers who come and the mothers who come get more out of it probably in the short term than the children. But if we advertised it as a program for mothers and fathers where they're going to get personal development, none of them would come. <laughs> but because we advertise it for the children, they come along. And, and, and just the, the process of sitting in a circle, you know, man, boy, man, boy, man, boy, or, or mother, daughter, mother, daughter, mother, daughter, you know, with a fire in the middle, and then getting the adults to, to share their stories. You know, when you get a group of men and boys and the fathers talk about what it was like when they were the age that their sons are now and the relationship they had with their fathers. I mean, half the men cry straight up. You know, it's a tragedy that so many men my age, you know, didn't have satisfactory relationships with their fathers. And, and, and then at the end, so I'll, I'll just come back a bit. You know, as men, one of our desires is to pass on our wisdom and knowledge to our children. But, or one of my desires is, but, you know, if you, <laughs> if you try and tell them how to live their lives, you know, they, they don't want to hear that once they're teenagers. And story has been the way for thousands of generations that wisdom and knowledge has been passed on. So when we sit in a circle and, for example, talk about relationships with our fathers, if we sat there and gave the boys a lecture how they need to be as fathers, they wouldn't even listen. But when, when men share from their, their hearts and are not allowed to lecture or philosophise, just tell their stories, the boys will sit there for hours, including the ones who supposedly have ADHD. They will sit there for hours and then at the end when we say to the boys, you know, if you have a son, what would you like him to say about you? And you hear the answers that these 13, 14, 15-year-old boys give and it's extraordinary, the wisdom and, the, and how they've listened. So, so when they hear stories, they take it in and they take the part that's relevant to them. <laughs> Um, so, you know, the sharing of stories is so powerful. And you've, you've talked, um, I've heard you talk in the past a lot about liminal space. Yeah. What is that and how do you work with that? Okay, so, so who's heard the word liminal space? Who's, who's <laughs> aware of liminal space? Okay. You guys are cheaters. So, <laughs> they've well, all been done on the train. On, on I, I hope that liminal space becomes one of your favourite words in the world, everybody. Um, and they talk about subliminal advertising. So in subliminal advertising, they get a movie and every 300 frames, they splice in a Coca-Cola bottle. You watch the movie, you don't see the Coca-Cola, but at, at interval, or they used to have interval, at the end of the movie, people go and they buy more Coca-Cola. So, so liminal space is about getting into the psyche. And, and what that means is that, um, if I'm going to change, if I'm going to shift from believing I'm a boy to believing I'm a man, or that I'm single to believing I'm married, or a student to believing I'm graduated, something has to change in my psyche. 
and most of the time, our psyches are not open to change. So, so in day-to-day -day life, we're not massively growing and changing and having revelations about life. We're just doing what we're doing. But in, when you are in what's called liminal space, your psyche actually becomes soft and malleable and you can change. And, and new concepts can come in and old concepts can leave. And under certain circumstances, we go liminal. So, I mean, I'm happy to hear if there are people who have examples, but nature, often if you go in nature, you, you, you can go liminal. When people go on holidays, they go liminal and they start having realisations about you know, what they're doing back home and the things they want to change and all that sort of stuff. You know, music can make people go liminal. But also we were talking about it and this was really interesting to me. It's, it's part of a longer conversation. We, might, we can all just stay for that long conversation, but um, negative things. You know, there's yeah. liminal negative and then negative okay. things get in and get yes. stuck as well. Yeah. So unfortunately and tragically, often, you know, for example, if a child gets abused, in that time they can go liminal and whatever happens to them gets put into their psyche and then when, they're, they're, when the abuse stops or whatever, their psyche closes and that abuse event is in their psyche and for the rest of their life, it actually dominates their lives because it's in there. And post-traumatic stress, someone goes into the, a war situation, terrible things happen, they come back home, but they keep reliving that war situation because it's, they, they became liminal, it went in and it stayed in there. So the use of liminal space in a rite of passage is by creating the right conditions, by separating people from their normal environment, by sharing stories, doing challenges, all this thing, people go liminal and then the stories get in and the changes can happen and then you have to shut down the liminal space again and come back into the society in a new way. And you know, we have a classical one in Australia where people go away for a year or whatever. Who went away for a year at the end of um, school or at some stage, went traveling for a year? And, and you know, I did, I went on Mahon and into Israel for a year. It was the most amazing year of my life and I grew up and all this sort of stuff. You know, I was liminal. I was in a transformational state. And liminal is, it's that state between one stage in your life and the next. And, and in, in liminal space, you, you can't quite relate to the state before and, and you don't know what's going to happen after. Who, who's got an example of having been in liminal space? Anyone? Do, do you understand what I'm talking about here? What's the time? Yeah. Uh, my wife and I, when we, uh, three years after we married, we did um, Europe for nine and a half months. Yeah. Okay. So we literally, I would say, shed our skins of what we yeah. were as children and yeah. came back. Okay. Individuals. Fantastic. Now, you see, unfortunately, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to come back, you're supposed to go liminal, learn, grow, change, and then it's supposed to shut down and you come back and your community is supposed to see you differently and, and, and you are different in community. A lot of my friends who came back from our years away, no one saw us differently. They wanted me to be the old Anna and, and I found that really challenging. So all I wanted to do was go back into liminal space where I could feel alive again. 
And this is part of this thing that, you know, we go through changes in our lives and the indigenous communities would deliberately create liminal space to get that spiritual or psychic growth to the next stage. And, and there's a belief that as humans, you know, we have a need for this. We need to keep growing. You know, if you don't grow, I heard a beautiful thing the other day which said, you might remember it, Danny, it's the paradox where only through change can we remain stable. Only through change can we remain stable. So if we don't change, if I try and stay a boy, you know how it is if your kid, if your 10 year old is acting like a baby, or you know, we actually need to keep changing. We need to have periods of liminal space followed by periods of sort of normality. And because we're not getting liminal space in our lives naturally, people go looking for it artificially. Drugs, alcohol, all of those sorts of things. Is technology the same? Yeah? Technology, absolutely. That's the liminal place of teenagers. So they're having a virtual initiation. They're out there and they're heroes on all these war games and everything, but their, gen their, their ability to actually function and be resilient is the worst it's ever been. You know, they're not allowed to ride their bikes after school anymore and they all have to have a mobile phone in case something happens and, you know, we, it's, a, it's a problem. And, and the thing about doing it artificially, it's not then liminal, it's liminoid, and there's a price, there's a cost, there's the addiction, or there's the hangover, or there's the, the failure to grow. So, you know, as, as, as humans, we need to keep evolving and changing. So we need this liminal space to come into our lives appropriately. And the other thing is, because we're not creating rites of passage for our teenagers, for our kids, they're doing it themselves. You know, they're going out looking, they're doing crazy things, stupid things. You know, who, who's got a kid who's acted out or, or you know, been difficult? It's all about that. They're needing to change, they're wanting to change. It's not being created for them. So they're trying to do it themselves, but they don't know how to do it. And the danger is that they overdo it and they do something terrible, which affects them for the rest of their lives, or they don't do it properly, and then you end up with men who, who are saying, you know, when am I actually going to feel like a man? So there were two, I mean, there were a number, but two really fundamental reasons for Rite of Passage, to bring out the gifts in the individual, which were the gifts of the individual for the community. And the other was to create the transition from boy to man or girl to woman. So if we talk about men, because I always find that's much safer for me to talk about, that boy psychology <laughs> is what you typically see in a six to eight year old. It's all about me, I'm the centre of the universe, I want acknowledgement all the time. You know, look at me, look at me, look at me in the park, look at me eating my food, look at me on the toilet, just, just look at me. And, you know, and if I can't get acknowledgement from behaving well, I'll behave badly. And, and boy psychology is I'm immortal and I just want more and more power. A boy can't handle his own emotions if he doesn't get what he wants. I love it when you see a four-year-old in the supermarket having a temper tantrum. That's boy psychology. Um, and a boy wants a mother also, which is a beautiful thing. And whereas healthy man psychology, 
I don't do things for acknowledgement. I do it because I believe it's the right thing to do. It doesn't matter whether anyone sees it. And I know I'm mortal. I'm going to die one day. And that affects how I live my life now. And you know, I have to be responsible for my actions. Whereas a boy, well, it's always someone else's fault. You know, I mean, have any of the women in the room ever met a man who still wants acknowledgement, still wants to be the centre of attention and, and, and wants power and wants a mother? You know, and, 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 and but you, you know, can I, all sign other people you know up for Anna's cause outside. But from a societal point of view, you know, if the world was ruled by boys, then they would want power, and, and it would all be about staying in power and short term actions, not being responsible. And, and you know, if the earth is the sort of the mother energy, it would be, oh, we can just take and take and take and pollute and pollute and pollute, and it'll always be okay. She'll still always be there. You know, and there is an argument that we live in a world that's been run by boys. There's a big argument. There's an argument that a lot of you know, CEOs and heads of companies are, and men in power are actually boys, as opposed to you know, genuine long-term visions and um, you know, taking empathy, responsibility, empathy, empathy all of those sorts of things. You know, and, and there's a similar model for, for girls and, and girl psychology where in girl psychology, you know, other women are competition and a girl cares only about herself or only about others. Whereas you know, a woman, you can balance self-care and, and care for others. You know, and a girl is wanting a, you know, a hero father or man who's gonna put on a white horse and ride away. You know, and you know, also about emotions and things like that. And, and because so much of our society is run on this sort of child psychology, you know, we, we see, instead of us honouring women as they get older. There's all this pressure and so we see the plastic surgery happening and the, you know, the need to try and look young and, and all of these sorts of things. You know, I once heard of a tribe who actually, once a woman has saggy breasts, she gets a huge deal more recognition and she's elevated because it shows that she's had children and she's got wisdom. <laughs> you know, what was that? You know, but, but it's a beautiful concept, as, as opposed to, you know. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big difference. And, and they recognised that if you had a society that was run by children, it would destroy itself. And... Here we yeah, are. Here we are. Yeah. Um, I think it would be good to ask questions. If you guys have questions, I feel like you have lots, because I could do this all night. So please. Uh, recently we've had um, growing coverage of the notion that addiction to drugs is not a chemical issue, but is actually an issue of a lack of connectedness and belonging. And the fact that when anyone in this room goes to the hospital, we often will be given cocaine as a painkiller, and we have no problem coming off that drug once our treatments are dealt with. But obviously people get addicted to drugs. Um, I'm just interested in your perspective on that notion that, that it's getting much wider coverage now. Yeah. Uh, what you've seen, the people you've worked with and yeah. maybe troubled minds. Yeah. 
Um, look, you know, I, I speak to a lot of parents, and, and one of the questions that I ask is, you know, what, what do parents worry about? And, and the typical answers that I get, you know, drugs is usually pretty high on the list, and, 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 and mental health issues and um, things like that. And w when it comes to drugs, I always say, you know, the, the question we need to be asking ourselves is not how we can stop our kids, um, uh, you know, taking drugs, but because drugs are everywhere now, but what, what's, what's going, how can we make it so that when our kids are exposed to drugs, which they all be, will be, why are some going to say yes and some are going to say no? And the, the conclusion I come to time and time again is that it's all about their sense of well-being and, and, and their deep sense of well-being. And that if a, if a child um, has good family relationships, um, you know, reasonable hobbies, believes in themselves, you know, what I call a healthy personal identity, and I actually write about it in my book, the five different things of a healthy personal identity, and you can give them a score from zero to 10. That, that if they've got a healthy personal identity, then drugs are a lot less attractive to them. And, and I've worked with some kids who've done terrible things, not only taken drugs, but been violent, been in remand, all this sort of stuff, you know, done really bad things and young men been in jail, and then you ask them, you know, what, what was it like at home? And these kids have been abused and they've been kicked out of um, home and, and, you know, terrible things have happened to them. So drugs become attractive because when they take drugs, well, they feel good. And when they take drugs, they've got a, they've got a social network. And even if that social network is other drug takers, at least it's a social network. So, so for me, the most important thing, if we can find we can help our kids find what they're passionate about, then they're going to want to do that. And by the way, there are lots of other drugs. I actually think, in fact, I'm convinced technology is a drug. And, and you take your kid's iPad and all his technology away for a day or a weekend, and he will exhibit all of the behaviours of a drug taker. He will lie, he will cheat, he will have a temper tantrum, he will tell you he will hate you you know that stuff will happen but you know if a kid has hobbies and things they want to do then you know drugs are a lot less and, and when I say drugs I include technology are less attractive to them you know there, there are a percent there's a, I, I believe there's a very small percentage where it's genuinely a chemical thing but I believe the vast majority if we maintain good relationships with our children, if we keep talking to them, if we change how we parent them when they're teenagers, which is a big one and I'd like to actually talk about that a little bit, um, then they will still be exposed to drugs, but they're much less likely to say no. You're freaking me out. You need to talk about the teenage thing. Uh, well, yeah. I'm really happy that we've managed to speak mainly about rites of passage because, you know, a lot of people with my, that's what I love talking about, but a lot of people want me to talk about parenting because, you know, it, it, it's such a, you know, obviously a big topic. But, you know, I, I believe that parenting's subjective and that, you know, there's lots of different ways. And I don't, I don't think there's anyone who can say that they've been the perfect parent. And so, you know, I struggle when they sort of say you're a parenting expert. And in fact, my kids regularly say when we're arguing, Dad, you're supposed to be a parenting expert. <laughs> How come? But having said that, you know, I could not be more proud of my sons. And I, and I could not be happier 
about the relationship I have with them. And in fact, the only reason why they're here, they're supposed to be in Europe traveling around, uh, in America, sorry, they've been traveling together for a year because they're brothers, they decide to go away for a year. And my mother got very sick about two weeks ago. And initially I told them not to come back. And then I rang them the next day and said, look, it's your decision. They said, well, actually we've been talking about it and we want to come back. You know, and that's why they're here. And, and I'm so proud of, you know, I mean, we still argue about whether they should floss and how they should dress <laughs> and all that sort of thing. But when it comes to the big, deep decisions, they're onto it. And, and I love that so much. And you know, we have a policy that we have an adventure together once a year. And we still do it. You know, 25 and 23, once a year, either one-on-one -on -one or the three of us together, we, we go away and do something. And, you know, I mean, I feel very blessed in that. So I'm not the perfect parent, for sure, but I, I love the relationship I have with my kids. And, and one of the things I, I believe really deeply is that how we parent them when they're young adults has to be different from how we parent them when, when they're children. So when they're children, you know, we have responsibility, this is what I believe, but you make your own decision, that we have, an, we have responsibility to create boundaries and, and to actually, you know, show them how to be. But by about 13, 14, they're going to be starting to do their own thing. And by 15, 16, they're gone, and maybe even younger. And, and so then the parenting has to shift from I'm the father and you're the, 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 the kid to much more like this, where we can actually start to support them and we can discuss their decisions and, and we can help them when they, they muck up. You know, I mean, we all mucked up at some stage and, and you know, I want that when my kids are really in trouble that they know they can come to me. That's the most important thing. So for me, there's a series of things where once they become 10, you know, I've, I've said to my boys ever since they were like about 14, 15 and they want to do something, I say, well, look, you know, you're a young man now. It's your decision. You know, hopefully we can talk about it, you know, and if it doesn't work out, hopefully we can discuss it. But if, if we try and hold on to that power thing, they will reject us. And so for fathers, and I'm so happy to see so many men here. I'm Me really too. happy. <laughs> you know, what I say is that we, at, once they become teenagers, we need to stop telling our, our children how to live their lives. Because they don't want to hear that from us. They want to hear our stories. They want to be able to ask us questions. They, they want a relationship, but not one of, you know, I know everything and do it because I'm telling you to do it. And, and, and what I say to mothers, um, there's an amazing word, smother. <laughs> and the word smother, uh, it's That's a pure awesome coincidence, <laughs> is actually S mother. It's amazing. And, 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 and you know, what we say is that once our, for mothers, I have once they've been once, always you know, connected. Yeah. Yeah. I just, that I we actually, feeling. you know, we have to accept <laughs> that we need to, if, if we can give them the space, then they will come to us. But, but if, if you try and hold on to them and know everything and control it and everything, they're going to push away. So it's, you know, it's another one of these paradoxes that by letting them go, by trusting them, by being prepared to, to talk to them, they're, you know, they're actually going to 
stay with us. The saddest thing, you know, I've seen so many, I see boys, you know, the mothers, I had a mother bring her boy to me when I was working as a doctor and she goes, you know, and he's 17 and he's sitting there and he's got his cap pulled down and he looks angry saying, you know, Dr. Arnie, you got to talk to my kid. And she goes, oh, you got something on your face to a kid. And she licks her finger. <laughs> and you can see the kid, you know. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and after a while I said, look, you know, how about you, you leave and I'll talk to him for a little while on my own. <laughs> and she walks out and the cap goes up. She goes, oh, my God. He goes, she drives me crazy, you know. <laughs> she wants to tidy my room. She irons my underpants, you know. <laughs> so, I, you know, and, and it's this thing about finding their gifts, supporting them, being there. And, and, and the other big thing which comes up is around discipline, which is that, you know, when they muck up, and they're going to, about separating the person from the behaviour. You know, if we shame the kid, you're no good, you're hopeless, this is, you know, and it's the hardest thing to do in the moment when the blood's rising, then, you know, we, we push them away. And, and then, as I say, when big things happen, they don't feel safe to come to us. You know, when I was a kid, if something went wrong, my parents were the last person I would tell. But I don't want that. It's a dangerous world out there. And I know, because we've had examples, stuff's happened, and I know the boys, my sons, my men, can come to me. And that's, that's a very important thing. You've got to ask questions. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> when you talk about storytelling, how do you take negative things that happen to you in your life and tell them in a constructive way to your mm. children? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. great question. You know, I think, I actually believe they need to know that negative things have happened to us and it's about how we dealt with it or didn't deal with it. Because one of the things is that when a kid hears a story, and, and, and the beautiful thing about doing it in a group, by the way, is sometimes the story my son needs to hear is not my story, it's someone else's story. And, and the part of the story that one person will hear is different from another part. They say stories are a storehouse of information. And, you know, a lot of kids think that we adults have got it all together and we know what's going on and we've got our lives sorted out. And what I find with teenagers is pretty much every teenager is struggling on some level and pretty much every teenager thinks they're the only one that is struggling on some level. And when they actually hear how we mucked up or what wasn't working for us or what was not okay, then it actually normalises life for them. And I think one of the biggest mistakes parents can make is to try and make out that our <coughs> lives were perfect and we never had problems, we never struggled, you know, all the different things there. So my, my, my thing around that is just to be honest. And that the stories we should be telling are stories that are the same age that we were with our child. So when our kid is six, the best stories to tell them is about when we were six. You know, I don't need to tell my kids when they're six about my 18-year-old drug-taking days, for example, <laughs> if they happened. You know, they need to hear the stories when I was six years old and got in trouble for, you know, pinching the dog or, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know. And, but, the, but if we start this storytelling when they're young, 
Then when they're 13, 14, 15 and they're starting to struggle and they're starting to struggle with us, I can tell them about, hey, hey, I started to struggle with my dad when I was your age. So, you know, I understand if you're struggling with me. Does that make sense? Um, hello. Hi. I was hoping um, you could speak a little bit about how you deal with sexual identity um, with teenagers and specific with rites of passage. Because it's such an um, important way we we interact in the world and our parents and how um, you talked about earlier a uh, mother and a, and a daughter or a father and a son how they relate to each other and if there is um, an issue with sexuality and finding yourself in that way how that bridge is gapped how you gap that bridge it's a great question it's a challenging question um, look we know that there are so many different personal versions of sexuality today. And, and our big thing is to respect that. And, and we have a policy in our work of um, everybody share, you know, especially the men, sharing their story but not lecturing and philosophising. And, you know, I think it's really important for I mean, I talk mainly about boys because I work mainly with boys, but everything translates, I believe, exactly the same with girls. Girls need to write a passage, girls need to hear stories. And we, you know, we have a talk about sex on our programs. We need to, oh my God, we need to. I mean, the kids these days are learning about sex from porn. The average age of smartphone ownership in Australia is 13. And it's going down by two years every year. So by next year, it'll be 11, the year after that, 9. And once you've got a smartphone, you've got 24-7 access to everything. And, and, you know, they need to hear stories from men that are not about porn. Um, and, and they also need to hear that, that different men have, have their own different versions of sexuality. And, and then the boys can feel safe to ask questions and to actually start to identify their own sexuality. I mean, you know, we, we often have, for example, men who come on the camp who are gay. And they, you know, it, it's fantastic for the boys to sit there, there and hear a man say, you know, when I was a, a teenager, I knew I was gay. But I was just, I couldn't tell anyone. And I went to an all boys school and it was all about playing football and how painful that was for me. And, you know, this is what happened for me and it maybe wasn't good and this is blah, blah, blah. So he's not telling the boys to be gay. He's not telling them anything other than his own story. And then they hear from another guy, you know, who is a farmer, who talks about, you know, a whole different experience. But, but they need to hear that stuff and they need to know that they can ask questions in a confidential environment. And, and, and you know... There's more. I mean, hopefully, by the end of the conversation, we get to the question of what's the difference between having sex and making love. You know, imagine a 14-year-old getting to hear a group of men who are actually taking it seriously. Which, by the way, when men <laughs> sit together just as men, they behave so much better than when there are women around. <laughs> it's amazing. And we have the most profound, beautiful deep, wonderful conversations. I mean, basically what happens is men's work happens and the boys get to see it. 
And, and when, they, when we get the men, drop all the bullshit. You know, there's no telephones, there's no watches, there's no work stuff. We don't care about, you know, it's just tell your truth. And, and the boys get to hear that stuff. It changes their lives. So instead of having to sort of start working it out when they're 30, 40, 50 years of age, you know, they can start doing it at 13, 14, 15. In fact, I, I have a dream, and, and it's getting closer to happening, of having a mountain and having a father-son or a man-boy write a passage happening here and a mother-daughter-girl-woman write a passage happening here. And then after about four days of being deep in liminal space, imagine you then get the girls and the boys, leave the parents out, to come and sit together around a fire, preferably in a beautiful teepee, but it doesn't matter where. <laughs> and no one's allowed to speak for the first 15 minutes. You know, just imagine these boys and girls just looking and feeling. And, and then to get the girls, you know, talking about, you know, what sort of man do they really want to have as a boyfriend and marry? And the, and the men and the boys to talk about, you know, what sort of men do they want to be? What sort of you know, relationships do they want to have? Imagine actually starting that work when they're teen. I mean, that would be so powerful, I believe, and would just negate so many issues. You know, the whole thing about domestic violence. You know, let's put them in jail for longer. That's ridiculous. We need to be talking about it when they're 12, 13, 14, even younger, that it's not okay. And, and that's when the conversations need to be happening. So I hope that answers your question. I sort of, <laughs> yeah. What about the boys that don't have a father? Yeah, that's a great question. Because, you know, we know that one in three boys, over 50% of marriages are in a divorce, and, and at least one in three boys have very little to do with their fathers, which is just, or they don't have a father, or, you know, tragic. And, on our camps now, sometimes up to half the boys who come are coming with men other than their fathers. With a grandfather, with an uncle, with a mum's boyfriend, with an older brother, with another man. And, and sometimes there's no man and a school teacher will come or we find someone within the community. And, and for me, it's about actually the father energy and, and that all of us men, Every man in this room, we all have a responsibility to work out how are we going to create a rite of passage for all the young boys, some of whom have fathers and some of who don't. And we can't just say, if you don't have a father, we're not going to do it. And those boys and girls, they need to know what their gifts are and what their genius is and how we as a community need that. And they need to go through that shift from child to young adult. So you It's know, on all of us. Yeah, it's on all of us. And it's, in, it's, it's vital that within the programs that we do, I mean, one of the things that we do at the end of our program, and this is a good thing to finish with, is we, we have a chair. And one at a time, each kid comes and sits in that chair in front of everyone else who's on the program. All the men, all the leaders, all the other boys, girls, whatever. And then, if their father's there, he comes up and in front of everyone, he tells his son what he loves about him what he's proud of, what he thinks is beautiful and wonderful. And then one, another man comes up and tells that boy what he admires and respects about him. And then one of the leaders comes up and tells that kid. And you just see them grow. And, you know, and there are boys there who don't have a father. And we make sure that two, three, four, five men tell that kid 
how amazing they are. And, the, and they, you know, they need it more in some ways if they don't. They need to hear older men saying, not only are you okay, but we think you're amazing. And we've seen how good you are with other kids. We've seen how great you are with the fire. We've seen how respectful you are. We've seen how intelligent and quick and bright you are. We've seen how good you are at playing music. You know, whatever it is, they need that. And, you know, there's the saying, it takes a community to raise a child. And we are a community. And Dumbo Feather is about creating a community. And, you know, we, we, we can't just leave it to chance, I believe. You know, all of us, if this actually becomes the norm, you know, if every kid shifted from child to adult psychology, knew what their gifts were, brought them out into the world, I think we'd have a really different situation happening. So that's how we deal with it. It's a real gift, Anna. Thank you so much for tonight, for coming, and just thanks, everyone. Thank you. To hear more from Anna and to find out about upcoming Conversation Series events, head to our website, dumbofeather.com. This podcast was supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests in conservation projects and will never invest customers' money in fossil fuels. Where you bank every day makes a difference.